Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning, continuing to work our way through the text, Romans chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 6 to 11, and we're going to be talking about ambition, our ambition in life, what it is we're striving for. And so as is our custom before we, before we dig in, let's just pause for a moment and, and ask the Lord uh, really to help us. And so I invite you as you're turning in your Bibles to Romans Chapter 2, let's also just bow for a word of prayer and ask for God's help to illuminate the text. Would you, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, our sinful hearts, O oh Lord, have a tendency to take what is so simple and to twist it in, in order to justify ourselves, even when we know your truth. We want to contort it away from its pure and holy form into a manner more agreeable to our own sinfulness. We tend to deny things that you've called us to and to assure ourselves that we can ignore your call on the basis that salvation is of faith, implicitly rejecting the truth that with salvation comes a transformation of the heart. Lord, there are probably some here today who have heard your call on their lives to aspire to greater things. And yet, Lord, they aspire to nothing. They won't answer that call. Father, we rejoice that our salvation is entirely based on faith. Help us to understand what a biblical faith looks like. We pray you do that this morning, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would just illuminate the text before us, that your Spirit would so shine upon the written word that our hearts would be able to respond in faith. Drive these truths home to us this morning, and above all, Lord, help us to aspire to your glory. We pray that you do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My question for you this morning as we begin is, what do you dream about? No, no, no. I'm not talking about the REM type of dream. I'm not talking about the dreams you have when you lay down in your bed at night. I'm talking about your dream for the future. I'm talking about the dream that you dream that causes you to reach for something beyond yourself. I'm talking about the dream that you dream that you look at the world around you and you see elements of it that are broken or elements of it that could be improved upon and you aspire to change those things or to somehow improve upon those things. Those are the kinds of dreams that I'm talking about. If I could put it in a word, I would ask the question this way, what is your ambition in life? What is your ambition? For me, I've always been the kind of kid growing up that always wanted to, to sort of be at the, in the front row if, if, it was, if it was comedy hour, if there were jokes to be cracked. I wanted to be the one cracking those jokes. If it was something to do with sports, football, basketball, golf, other weird sports, not so much curling, but you know, pretty, pretty much anything that you could play, I, I wanted to play it, and I wanted to, to be at the forefront of it. When, when I think of ambition, I really think of myself. I mean, the person that comes to mind when I talk about ambition or aspirations is Josh Claycamp. I mean, you name it, I wanted to do it growing up. Didn't have a whole lot of musical skill. Somebody said to us one day, we should, we should try to uh, learn to play guitar and form a band and become rock stars. Sign me up. Didn't really know how to swing a golf club. Somebody said to me, you know, Tiger Woods is a pretty famous guy. He can hit that ball pretty far. I'm out there the next day swinging my club. Somebody said to me, you know, Einstein was well known. We should apply ourselves in school. We should dig down. There are academic honors to be earned here. And I said, you know what? I'm out of here. I want to go do the thing with the ball. My aspirations in life were broad but shallow. My aspirations in life were broad, but shallow. This morning, as I'm using this word aspiration or ambition, you're probably hearing that and you're thinking, okay, 
But there's a dark side. There's an underbelly, a wicked underside to ambition, Pastor Joshua. Perhaps you hear that word ambition and you think of the corporate climber, that individual who will chew you up and spit you out and don't get in my way. I will, I will run over you if you're in the way of me and my goals. Some of you, and you couldn't be blamed for thinking this, some of you, you hear that word ambition and uh, certain politicians start to come to your mind who perhaps have loftier aspirations than what they should. And you see them clearly willing to run over people and to deny certain individuals their freedoms and their rights and to go after people and to punish their political adversaries. And so you hear this word ambition and you're thinking, I don't know that that's a Christian concept, Pastor Josh. I don't know that that's right, that we should be aspiring to certain things or having ambitions per se. And so this morning, I want us to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, but I want to do so from within this framework of ambition, that is, what do you aspire to, what goals do you have in life, and I want you to evaluate the text this morning before the Lord, asking the Lord's word to work on your heart, to be that scalpel that divides to uh, soul and spirit, and to reveal to you whether or not your goals, your dreams in life are ones of glory and honor and immortality, or whether or not they are goals that are self-serving, self-seeking, goals that are evil and that ultimately obey unrighteousness. That's what I want you to really be wrestling with as we look at this text this morning. Look with me, Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. The text reads, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first as well as the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And that's really where we want to begin this morning. God shows no partiality. He doesn't take polls. He doesn't survey public opinion. He doesn't determine that certain people are privileged and he needs to listen to those types of people and he needs to get in with that sort of in crowd and that other people are underprivileged or not cool or he's totally unsympathetic to them. No, God is above all these human affairs. God is not swayed by public opinions. He doesn't make decisions based on polls. As we saw two weeks ago, God himself is the standard of morality. He himself is the basis for the moral law, and he does not sway to anyone else's viewpoint. As it says elsewhere in the scriptures, God is no respecter of persons. He is not partial to anyone. He himself is the supreme standard by which all other human beings created in his image are to be judged and and evaluated. He's the standard. Not uh, whatever you see on the evening news. Not whatever you glimpse in the magazine at the checkout counter. God is your standard. He is the one to which we are to look. His values, his priorities, his goals are the ones that should shape, mold, that our values would reflect his. Does everybody see that? This paragraph starts off with two statements. The first one, beginning in verse 6, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. On what basis, then, does he evaluate these works? Is there any kind of a sliding scale here? And the answer to that question is absolutely no. Because Paul then concludes this thought in verse 11, saying, point blank, God does not show any impartiality. That means you and I today, regardless of our socioeconomic background, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our upbringing, despite all of the other 
pieces of our historical past that we might cling to, point to, or identify as somehow disadvantaging us, disenfranchising us, or giving us undue advantage, despite all of these claims and all the societal hoopla around these sorts of ideas today, God is quite clear there is one standard by which you will judge. It is him, and regardless of who you are, where you come from, how much money you have, God does not care. He is impartial. We are all going to stand as equals before the throne of God. Amen to that. Wow. But this begs a question. And some of you are here this morning saying, okay, all well and good, Pastor Josh, but I seem to recall at some point the Apostle Paul saying that we're saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. I seem to, I seem to recall that very specifically. In fact, I seem to recall, having read through the book of Romans before, that Paul says that we're saved by faith and not by works. And indeed, you'd be right. In fact, just a few chapters later, here we are in chapter 2, in chapter 3, actually. In chapter 3, verses 23 and 25, it's probably right there on that same page in your Bible. If you just look over to the next column, it says, All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift. Meaning that your salvation comes to you as a gift from the Lord. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't do anything to deserve it. It says all this salvation comes to us, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But notice that word redemption. That's what we're going to be talking about today. What does redemption look like? The Apostle Paul, preaching the good news, sharing the gospel with us just one chapter later, says that we are saved by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Big fancy word essentially means atonement. He had died on the cross in order to bear the penalty for our sins and to absorb the righteous wrath of God against sinners who have perpetrated those sins. So that Jesus not only pays our debt, but he absorbs God's anger so that when the Lord looks on us, he doesn't see us as individuals who are sinners, those of us who placed our faith in Christ. He doesn't even look on us as individuals who have a blank slate. No, it's much, much better than that. In Christ, we're now counted as sons and daughters, family of the Lord Most High. That's what Paul is teaching to us there. And he says that this is to be received by faith, by faith, by what we believe. Redemption comes through faith. Now we come to Romans chapter 2, we rewind it back a bit. We come back to chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, and it seems quite clear here that works are involved in the judgment of God. We have here an A-B-B-A pattern. No, I'm not talking about the disco band from the 70s. ABBA, it's not what I'm referring to. This is what we would call a chiasm. Chiasm is a Greek letter looks like an X, okay? It looks like an X. And the idea of a chiasm is that the first part of the paragraph perfectly reflects the last part of the paragraph, and then the middle part of the paragraph reflects the other middle part of the paragraph, so that you start to work your way into it, and then you start to work your way out of it. So we have two couplets here, verses uh, 7 and 8, and then we have another couplet there in second half of, of, of verse 8 and 9, uh, and extending into, into verse 10. Again, the verse numberings don't perfectly mirror this, but we have here in this particular paragraph a chiasm. And so in this particular paragraph, what we begin to see is that in the immediate context here, Paul is not teaching us how exactly it is that we are made right with God, but what he is clearly demonstrating here in this particular passage is how God judges the reality of our faith. Paul has already said earlier in the book of Romans that we're saved by faith. But now he's sitting here talking about how God judges the reality of our faith. Faith is not an abstract quality that can be proven by some abstract spiritual test. When my students 
are given an assignment. They have to go home. They have to apply themselves to learning certain things. And yes, sadly, the moral responsibility of education is not merely that you read a thing or listen to a thing, but that you actually try to retain that information, much to my students' great chagrin. I lecture a Bible to you. We talk for six weeks. Then there's a test coming by which you will need to retain all that information I gave you over the course of six weeks, and you'll need to be able to demonstrate to me that you had retained it. Well, when we think about our faith, oftentimes what we do is we come up with these really far-out notions of how we can evaluate the truthfulness of what it is we believe by inventing tests which are nowhere found in Scripture. James says, show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, it is true that faith saves us, but in this particular passage, Paul is talking about the testing of that faith. And the spiritually prescribed, the biblically prescribed test that is given for how we can evaluate the legitimacy of our faith is the works that we do in life. Paul then says here in the first part of this that God is going to judge faith, the quality of our faith, by the difference that it makes in how we actually live. A.M. Hunter is very correct when he says, quote, a man's destiny on judgment day will depend not on whether or not he has known God's will, but on whether or not he has done God's will. In verse 7, then, if you look closely, we learn, quote, that those who are seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, those who are searching for those things, are rewarded with eternal life. They are set over and against those who are, quote, described as self-seeking and who don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So these descriptions help us to understand what Paul is saying about the judgment of God. And what we see here is that the judgment of God is on the basis of a person's actions, specifically in what they are seeking to do. Notice that. The first group has directed their lives toward the qualities that ennoble humans, that make us honorable. By a steadfast commitment to an ambition to do good, they are seeking to share in God's glory. They are seeking honor and they are seeking immortality. All of these things find their source in God. Whereas the second group that he contrasts, this is a very different group. The second group, they live lives that are controlled by selfish ambition. What I want you to see here in both of these groups is that they both have goals. They both have dreams. They both have ambitions. They both aspire to something. But one aspires to what is truly glorious, truly honorable. The other is self-serving, self-seeking. They obey unrighteousness. They obey lies. This is what Paul says. They have rebelled against the truth And they have allowed themselves, the verb is in the past tense, they have allowed themselves to be persuaded by that which is wrong, always resisting the right, always yielding to what is wrong. And what are the destinies of these two radically different groups of people? Well, Paul says that God will give eternal life to the first group of people, but that for the second group of people, there will be wrath and anger. So actions reveal ambitions. Ambitions, that is what you aspire to, determines your destiny. So ambition is very much so at the heart of a person who has been redeemed. You see, God doesn't just redeem you by atoning for your sins. As we will see working our way through the book of Romans, God transforms you so that those things you desire are noble things, not ignoble things. There are two major exegetical points that I just want to give to you broadly this morning. If you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, number one, seeking. The first exegetical point here 
is what people are seeking. In fact, you find that's the main verb of the first couplet. I'll read it to you. It says in verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing, underline this word in your text, seek for glory. That word seek, that's the main word there. What they are searching for, what they are aspiring to, what their ambition is. What's the main word in the second couplet, the bad guys? What's the main verb there? The main verb there is do not obey the truth, but underline this, they obey righteousness. Obey is is the second word there. And so what we see here is that there is a searching, a seeking that those who have been redeemed by God are called to. There is an ambition that you are to have. And this is so important for us today because everywhere I look in Canada, especially here in Kamloops, the city that I've known, the only city I've known for the last 14 years now, It's a city and a culture that is given over increasingly to leisure and play and entertainment. These are the things that we pursue. We go after it. Houses are built today with entertainment centers, computers and video gaming systems and televisions and stereos. And the televisions keep getting bigger and bigger. I was so excited that first time they came out with a 28-inch flat screen because it would take up less room. It didn't have the giant tube on the back of it. Now you can get like 76-inch. It's like it takes up the whole wall of your house. It's massive. The first time my wife and I got a 48-inch TV, we turned it on. That blue screen comes on. We were so overwhelmed. We were like, oh, no, it's so bright. I can't. We were like backing away from it. Of course, now we turn it on, and we don't back away from it at all. We get closer to it. We're like, hmm, I can't quite see the high def there. It's not quite good enough. You're laughing because you can relate. My parents used to watch TV on like an 18-inch thing that was like 25 feet across the room. And uh, they, if they lost the remote control, it was just like, oh, well, you know, we'll just watch whatever this channel's going to show us today. In my house, if we lose the remote control, it's like the apocalypse has happened. It's like stop everything, turn over the furniture, take away the cushions, find me that remote. It's like the Holy Grail. We will find it. We've become incredibly adept at our archaeological skills, searching for the missing remote. Test yourselves in all of this. We're given over to all of these increasingly stimulating and captivating distractions that are intended to keep our focus away from the realities of the world around us when we really need to be dreaming of the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and how to spend our lives alleviating ignorance and sickness and misery and above all, lostness. People not knowing the Lord, what we do instead is that we are becoming more and more addicted to amusement. We are being slowly numbed to accept whatever the world will give us because all we want to do is watch the most recent episode of our favorite TV, whatever the thing is on Netflix or Apple Apple TV or Disney Plus or whatever streaming service. we got more streaming on demand, whatever we want to watch at the drop of a dime that we are more concerned with getting home at the end of the day in order to be, you know, entertained, to be allowed to sit back and sit in our lazy boy recliners and just numb ourselves to sleep watching whatever's on TV rather than dreaming about how we can make our church a better place. Rather than dreaming about how we can teach kids the gospel. Rather than dreaming about how I can reach my next door neighbor who lives in the same cul-de-sac as I do with the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ that will save his life. Those are the things we should be dreaming about. Make a test of your vocabulary and just calculate, for example, the increasing frequency with which today we use words that the world uses. Putting up, and I'm guilty of this, putting up a a thing on social media to remind people of ladies' night. Come have, come, come join us for ladies' night. And you're thinking alliteration, you know, you want like three words, three adjectives that describe it. And of course, the main thrust there is fellowship. You want the ladies to have fellowship with each other. So you're like, okay, alliteration, I need two other adjectives that start with the, the letter F. Fellowship is going to come last. So what do I throw in front of that? You know what word comes to your mind immediately? 
a word. Thank you. Fun. Food, fun, fellowship. We're like yard barkers at a circus. Come watch the show. It's going to be fun and freaky and fantastic, you know. We want to throw a spiritual adjective in there, fellowship. But we're going to preface it with fun. Fun. I mean, the word fun is on the rise. If you count the number of instances that the word fun is used in advertising, multimedia, it's all over the place. We want to have fun. Fun, fun, fun. It's all about having a good time. When was the last time you saw an advertisement for something that used the word ennobling? Now, at this point, I am going, I resolve before you all now, social media, advertising blurbs for different events happening here at the church, I make it my purpose in life to use worthwhile adjectives to describe what we're doing here. Ennobling, worthwhile, edifying, strengthening, faith deepening, encouraging, transforming, valuable, or above all else, just God-exalting. To worship and exalt the Lord. If nothing else is happening here, at least we can say we came here. It was kind of weird. We didn't really get a lot out of it. But you know what? The world looks at this gathering and says, whatever else was going on there, they definitely were exalting God. That was why they were there to start with. So we put together a youth event. Things go off the rails from the word go. It turns into a gong show. But you know what? At the end of the day, whatever kind of benefit or edification may have come out of it, If nothing else positive happened, we could say, hey, look at all these teenagers who at least came together for the purposes of exalting Christ. So we should use these words in our our advertising rather than fun, food, fantastic. God will change your life. You'll be convicted. You'll walk away feeling horrible but knowing you need to repent and it will make you a better person. Nobody wants to hear that kind of advertising. But if we've been transformed by Christ, shouldn't that not be what we aspire to? Examine yourself with this text, because whatever else it teaches, it teaches this. That after death, there is eternal life and glory and honor and peace. And there is also eternal wrath and indignation, tribulation, darkness, distress, And in the twinkling of an eye, even before this service is over, you could be irreversibly on one side of that line or the other. Yes, it has to do with your faith, but if that faith is real, it has transformed your aspirations. So which side of that line are you on this morning? Where do you find yourself? When I throw out an advertising for fellowship that begins with the adjective fun, are you leaning to that? When I throw out an advertising for fellowship that begins with, when I throw out an advertising for fellowship that begins with the adjective ennobling or God exalting, are you down for that? And I don't blame you having swum, swam in the world for as long as we all have, that we have a natural tendency, having been conformed to the world, to want to hear the advertising that talks about fun and just let's have good time and play games and it'll be great. I am very much so pressured and molded by the world to want that over and against the soul-satisfying, God-exalting activity of seeing Jesus in his word. But if I've been transformed, and if my faith is real, that should be what I'm seeking. That should be my aspiration. That should be my ambition. So we need to examine ourselves this morning. Paul says that we should be seeking for glory and honor and immortality. It begins right there in verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing, that is doing good works, seeking are seeking for glory and honor and immortality. So what is glory? When we say this word glory, what are we talking about? There are two words that are very similar that are used here. One is glory, one is honor. So what is glory? The New Testament Greek word doxa speaks of worth and dignity and weight It's most often applied to God, but it can also include man, as though man could be given glory from God if man makes God his supreme worth and his surpassing treasure. 
Glory is about radiance and splendor and grandeur. It isn't just an attribute. It exists to be seen, to be looked at, to be recognized, to be praised, to be worshipped. God is glorious. It's about reputation. It's about esteem. It's about grandeur. So what's the difference between glory and honor? Honor has to do solely with reputation, and honor is limited. It's not universally the case. These words are sometimes used in Scripture in a somewhat interchangeable format. The Bible will talk of the honor of God, but the Bible primarily speaks of the glory of God, and it then talks about the honor that we receive as men when we exchange honor with one another, when we choose to honor someone. When we do that, what we are doing is we're holding an individual up as someone to be esteemed, to be recognized, to be respected, that others might aspire to live the life that they're living. When we honor someone, what we're doing is we're adding to their reputation in such a way that other individuals will be influenced to live like them, to imitate them. Whether or not we honor God, God is glorious. This is the difference. We may dishonor God, we may not honor God, but we can never take away the glory of God. Whereas when it comes to you and me exchanging honor with each other, it's something that we give to each other within a social network where we point you out to our friends, say, you see that guy over there? That is an honorable man. And we may not do it. We may do it for the right reasons. We also may do it for the wrong reasons in order to signal some virtue or some characteristic that really is not virtuous. But the thing about glory, when it comes to pursuing the glory of God, universally what the scriptures hold forth to us is that it is a quest. It's a quest. It's not something that we just wake up one morning and do and it's done. When I was a kid, going way back to the 80s, I remember my older brothers were into collecting baseball cards. And my brother Lucas in particular, he really wanted the 1987 Bo Jackson Topps rookie card. He wanted Bo Jackson's rookie card. Now, at that time, it wasn't worth anything, but it was rare because Bo Jackson, his rookie year, was the top hitter in, in baseball. So my brother wanted his card because he assumed, quite correctly, that someday it would be worth a lot of money. And he was going to all these baseball card collector shops, comic book shops where they would sell baseball cards, I mean, even at the checkout, they don't really do this anymore today. I don't know if they ever did it in Canada, but you could go through the checkout line at the grocery store, and they would have baseball cards there. And you'd buy a baseball card, a package of baseball cards, and there would even be really cheap, disgusting-tasting gum, a stick of gum in them, right? And my, my brother would beg my mother, please, Mom, buy me, buy me, just buy me this package. He was collecting. He had hundreds, thousands of baseball cards from that year. He was questing. He was in search of the one. Bo Jackson. And I didn't really give a rip about baseball. And I was like kind of into it for the gross tasting gum. <laughs> and, and I said, hey, mom, uh, you know, Lucas wants all these baseball cards. Uh, why don't you buy me a package of baseball cards so I can chew the gum? And, I, you know, I'll, I'll give Lucas whatever baseball card I find. She's like, okay. She buys my brother Lucas a package of baseball cards. She buys me a package of baseball cards. We tear open our baseball cards, first item of business, disgusting piece of dry gum in the mouth. We're eating it. You get like maybe, I think like 10 or 12 cards in a package, I forget now. And you start to go through them. My brother goes through his, no Bo Jackson. He's got like every other player from from the uh, baseball league that year, National Baseball League that year. I go through it, first card, I tear it open, I pop the gum in my mouth, first card right on top. Bo Jackson. You know how many baseball cards I collected? That year I collected exactly one baseball card. <laughs> I had made this deal with my, my mom. Mom, buy me the baseball cards. I'll give Lucas all these baseball cards. I just want the disgusting piece of gum. Well, you see, it was worth quite a bit to my brother. <laughs> quite a bit. I eventually gave it to him. My mom decided not to take an active interest in this clearly fraudulent exchange that I engaged in. 
in which I defrauded my brother for up to a year of his prized Bo Jackson rookie card. But the thing that stands out to me is he wanted every single player from that year. He wanted all their cards, and he wanted in particular the Bo Jackson rookie card. He, he was the top hitter that year, and, and it just wasn't complete unless he had that particular card. He wanted the whole set, and so he was on a quest to be able to look and see, I've got this whole set. Look at it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's complete. I'm not missing any one of them. I even have the very rare and highly coveted Bo Jackson card. And once he had that, I'll never forget the look on his face, that feeling of satisfaction that for a year and a full year's worth of negotiating and haggling and attempting by subversive means to even steal the Bo Jackson rookie card that I had, he would do anything to get it. He wanted it because he was on a quest. He was on a journey to have it. He valued the thing, he wanted the thing, and he was prepared to work and to do whatever it took in order to get the thing. Because in having it, he believed that there was glory, that there was something beautiful and majestic in it. We are all of us glory chasers. All of us. You sit here today and you say, I am content. I don't have any ambitions in life. I don't have anything I aspire to. And I'm telling you, that's not how God has made you. You are not fashioned that way. You can tell me that and you can tell yourself that, but it's a lie. You do aspire to something. And the real thing about this passage that we need to see is that what we aspire to can dictate whether or not we are saved. Do we seek the glory that comes from God? Do we have an ambition for God's glory? Or do we have the ambition for the glory that comes from the world? I want you to flip with me over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we see that ambition for glory is so big in our lives and also dangerous that it can determine how we respond to Jesus himself. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 36, Jesus is obviously teaching to the Jews. He's trying to show himself to be the Messiah. And John tells us that when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Verse 37, John chapter 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, this is crucial. We spoke last week of the hardness of the heart. That ties in here. John says that Jesus performed signs and miracles and wonders, but people didn't believe in him. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who is going to believe in Jesus? Who is going to receive the Christ? And he goes a step further and he continues to quote Isaiah. It says, verse 39, therefore, they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, quote, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, they could not hear it. They could not see it. In fact, they would not see it. And God says, all of this is by design. They will not see it. They will not hear it. If they had, they would have turned and I would have healed them. I would have granted them salvation, but they would not. John quotes both of these passages speaking to the hardness of the heart. Hardness of the heart is specifically mentioned here. And John says he now gives us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in his letter, the Gospel of John, he gives us the interpretation of these things. What is the root cause? What is the root desire, the root thing that they are after? Is it something that they fear? Yes, but something more. It is something that they love, and it has to do with glory. John gives us the root cause of this hardness of the heart. He says, beginning in verse 41, Isaiah said these things, he prophesied these things, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, many even of the authorities believed in him, but 
For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of losing their friends. They were afraid of losing their social standing. They were afraid of losing their place in the community. And we all can relate to this because in the last year, we have all seen relationships fractured and broken if we didn't subscribe to a particular viewpoint with regards to vaccine and mandates. Doesn't matter what side of the divide you're on, you're for them? Well, you got loved ones who are against them. Are you against them? Well, you've got loved ones that are for them. Well, Jesus is a bigger dividing point than vaccines. In fact, as Christians, and we've preached on this many times now, we're not going to allow vaccines to divide us here in this church because there is something much greater than that which binds us together. We're bound by it, but they were not. Look at what it says. What are they afraid of? Just to review, once again, they're afraid of losing their social status. They're afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. They're afraid of losing their friends, cousins, family, loved ones, whatever, the whole bit. But is it fear that drives them? No. It's love. Look at what John says. Again, verse 42, they didn't believe in him for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, four, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You are called to love glory, true glory. You are called to love God's glory. The second exegetical point that we take out of Romans, and this is the part where I need to speed it up because we're running out of time. The second part that we take out of Romans is this idea of patience. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, if you want to flip back to Romans, he says to those who by, look at this, patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. There's this idea that as we aspire to glory, it will cost us. We live in a world that has, by God's grace, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, enjoyed incredible prosperity and such a fluidity of cash that we can have almost instantaneous gratification. If there's something we desire, we can just go out and buy it. And this has been reinforced with the rise of fast food restaurants. You want a burger? You want it right now? Most you're going to be waiting is about two minutes. You can pull up to the window inside of two minutes, and you have your burger inside of another two minutes instantaneous gratification, no need to wait for it. We approach our spirituality, unfortunately, with that same idea. I want to do good for the Lord. So it should really just be a simple matter of me wanting it done, and it'll happen. But that's not what the text tells us. There's an element of patience in the seeking. You seek to do good. You seek to do what is noble but it will require time and energy. And such time and energy, such need to be patient and to begin searching out how you can serve the Lord, this is a part of the quest for glory. Think about the Apostle Paul. Back before he was the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus. Bright light shines. Boom, he's blinded. They take him to this place in Damascus there and Ananias is called, says, the Lord says to Ananias, go and minister to Saul of Tarsus. Ananias is like, forget it. No way, this guy's a serial killer. You're out of your mind. I'm not going to go minister to this guy. And what does the Lord say? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Members of brothers and sisters of First Baptist Church, we hear that and we're like, yeah. I want to be a chosen instrument of the Lord. I want to be the guy that preaches to the masses. I want to be the guy that's making a difference. I want them to write headlines about me in the newspaper in which they're like, who is this guy doing so much good? I want to be known as a chosen instrument of the Lord. 
So does Ananias hear that and say, all right, I'll go get him? No, because God's not done talking. There's more. He says, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I made my brother Lucas suffer for the sake of that Bo Jackson baseball card. But you see, that was a part of the quest. He had to have it. And as a young seven-year-old little boy, I discovered just exactly how much he was prepared to do to get it. Now, I say that to you just to illustrate the basic concept. The glory of the Lord is way more beautiful and way more satisfying than any baseball card. But I cannot begin to tell you the number of times Christians will come to me, brothers and sisters in this church, with a really great idea that I should do. I say, well, that is a great ambition. That is a great aspiration. And I believe it would exalt the name of the Lord. I think it would be honoring to him. But this is your idea. This is your dream. Will you labor for it? Will you give to it? Will you strive day after day, month after month, even year after year, until it begins to produce fruit? And I cannot tell you how many times I'm, said, I'm told, no, 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 this is your job. You do this. I'm going to go home and catch my most recent series on Netflix. I'd love to give to it, but I have camping trips planned, you see. My family is going to Disney World. This is what it means to pursue glory where we sacrifice and we give up the other creature comforts because there's something that matters more to us. There's something we desire more. And it must be that God is exalted. And I hate to break it to you. If I've ever been faithful to you as a preacher, it has to be in this thing. You show the world just how beautiful and magnificent the Lord is. Not through your charm, not through your sophistication in preaching, not through whatever you might uh, be able to do in terms of your gifts and abilities. The thing that really shows the world how much Jesus means to you is what you will suffer for him. When the text says patience in well-doing, what Paul is speaking to is our drive to continue day after day, week after week, month after month of doing what is good in exalting the name of Christ despite the constant setbacks, the constant disappointments, the constant discouragement, being made fun of, being persecuted, being shunned and shut out of society. And yet, despite all of that, we continue to proclaim the name of Christ. What is your ambition? What do you aspire to? How will you leave here today? And what goals will you begin to set that will take months, years, decades even for you to accomplish that you will be able to make a difference for God's kingdom? I ask and I I think you need to come up with a good answer to that question before the Lord because he didn't put you here just to be a back row Baptist. All the folks on the back row are starting to slink down like, oh. I'm not talking about where you sit in the sanctuary, brothers and sisters. I'm talking about where you sit in your heart in terms of what you will give to exalt the name of Christ. Has your life been redeemed? That's the question. You say, am I saved by works? No. You're saved by faith, but faith leads to the transformation of the whole person right down to the direction and the focus where you pursue glory. That's what the text is telling us this morning. Not that long ago, I heard a podcast interview with a Christian college professor, and he was contrasting college students today with those of the past He's been in academia for multiple decades, and he said, decades ago, incoming freshmen were marked by their pride. 
they could and they would eventually become leaders. They were going to be the change agents, as they called themselves in the 90s. They were going to be the innovators for industry, government, and commerce. Their ideas would influence society and determine the course of civilization. It was class after class after class of proud, hungry, arrogant, and ambitious students, this professor said. But over the years, he went on to describe what he determined, what he detected to be a distinct shift. Freshman classes morphed away from ambitious, perhaps arrogant, but ambitious individuals to something else. Gone was the drive to succeed, to aspire to something better, something noble, something glorious. That was all out the window. Replacing it was only the impulse for comfort. The professor related how many in this generation now have drives and dreams reaching no further than their own ease. Their goals in life stop at their couch. There's no cause gripping them, no quest inspiring their imagination. It's simply the loss of initiative. It's the loss, I would say, of ambition. Now, it's corrupted. The reason why we're afraid and have historically been afraid of ambition is because very often it leads us into the world's playground where it can be easily twisted, where our goals and our our values, our desire to glorify the Lord can be quickly corrupted into something that is self-seeking and self-serving. And when that happens, ambition becomes absolutely plutonic. It's, It's radioactive. It glows with depravity when you turn the lights off. We should avoid that. But we should never avoid honoring the Lord. As Christians, there's much that we have been given from our forebears, our ancestors, that we should love. But we're called to be thinking about our goals for the future. It's a future that has been secured by the cross. We cannot lose it because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary. It's a future secured by the cross but it is a future commissioned to us by the Savior. A future both given and grabbed at, protected and pursued. It is our future if we dare to believe in God's promises. I urge you today, seek his glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the distinction that Paul paints for us here. We know that it is our faith that saves us, but our prayer, Lord, is that our faith would so radically transform us that we would aspire to do great things for the cause of the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to have higher aspirations, higher ambitions than silly little entertainments. Help us, Lord, to do good, that Christ be exalted among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.